do hope you can join us for that starting in two weeks on the 16th. Uh, about two years ago, we shifted to these six-week semesters, and we've seen a real upswing in involvement, uh, attendance, and being able to target certain uh, things in these classes, uh, topical things that uh, are all based on the word applying to our lives and just a great time of not only education, but also fellowship where you will find yourself sitting next to, rubbing shoulders with people in our church community that you normally wouldn't ever really spend time with. And that ends up being kind of a, a real benefit to these classes as well. Well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We are on page 847 in a blue pew Bible, and we are going to be finishing this chapter this morning, the final seven verses, um, and it has taken us now over eight months to preach through the first ten chapters of the Gospel of Mark. If you were counting, which I hope you were not, uh, that has been 33 sermons uh, so far just in the Gospel of Mark, going verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter. And um, after this morning, uh, we are actually going to take a break from the Gospel of Mark. So uh, something that we've done now every year for now the fourth year uh, is that we have begun a series on vision and the vision of the church uh, the Sunday after Labor Day weekend. Uh, It's not the same sermons year after year, but it's the same theme around vision, um, our vision for this church, God's vision for the local church, and um, I'll have the opportunity next week to explain why, uh, one, we started doing that, and now also why we think that is vitally important to maintain that rhythm year after year. But, uh, but we're not there yet. We got finished chapter 10 in the Gospel of Mark, and it's a short story. It's a relatively simple story, and I think what happens is when we come to these really short stories, these very familiar ones, where it's so easy just to gloss over them, right? So the, the story this morning, Jesus is going to heal a blind man. Spoiler alert. And my guess is, especially if you have church background, if you've been around, even if you've been around the Gospel of Mark this whole series, uh, you'll kind of see it. You go, yeah, yeah, I know what happens here. We've seen this over and over again plenty of times. Yes and amen. He healed the blind man. It's Labor Day weekend. Let's get going. All right? I I know. All right? I've sat in your seat for years. Um, And so let me just encourage you, uh, not so fast. Not only are there no throwaway passages or verses in the Bible But I think we're going to find, hopefully by the end, that this is a powerful little story. And I think we're going to find it's all the more impactful because we have been walking through this gospel verse by verse. Because Mark is going to indicate something here with the story for the reader who is paying attention. For for the person who's paying attention, this story is not just randomly located uh, in the middle of chapter 10 or the end of chapter 10. but, But he's indicating something because you're going to see... We've seen a healing of a blind man before. We've seen a short story like this one before, and not that long ago. In Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, Jesus walked into a village and restored a man's sight. Now, Mark 10, 46 to, 50 through 46 to 52, Jesus will walk out of a village and restore a man's sight. And these two stories serve as bookends, this kind of introduction and now conclusion to a section of the gospel that's very distinct from the rest of the book. Uh, The end of chapter 8, all of chapter 9, all of chapter 10 look really nothing like the other chapters and parts of the gospel of Mark. It's very distinct, and it's a section that we've walked through now all summer, commonly called the discipleship discourse, answering the question, hey, what's it mean to be a disciple? What's it look like to be a follower of Christ? Not how do you become one now. What's it look like to, to be one? What's it look like to be a disciple? 
Right after that first healing in chapter 8, we read how uh, Jesus asked, hey, who do people say that I am? Okay, that's what they say. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. It's the first one in the Gospel of Mark to proclaim that. And Jesus affirms this. It's like breakthrough moment in the Gospel of Mark. The whole first eight chapters kind of pointing to that moment. And then Jesus immediately proceeds to say, okay, you got it. Now let me show you what it looks like to have a faith that actually follows. How God does something in you as a result you receive these new lenses, right? Be thou my vision. These new lenses through which we see the world, we see our place in the world, and that begins to work through you in ways that starts to transform your desires, starts to transform your thoughts, your words, your actions, how you see other people, how you treat other people. And that whole thing, this whole section, we call the discipleship discourse. Passage after passage of Jesus teaching and discipling with these beautiful and really countercultural lessons. Hard lessons, like take up your cross and follow me. That the way to glory, we all want to get to glory, well, the way there is going to travel on the pathway of suffering. How about the lesson, like, you want to be great? Do you want to be great? You need to be a servant. The great ones, you see, are servants. The mature ones, they're servants. The first will be last. The last will be first in the kingdom of God. That's a hard lesson to learn. So um, Rochelle's sister has been visiting out the last few days. She brought her um, oldest son, five-year-old, Jace, sitting right here. Um, So, uh, Sorry, Jace, but uh, he's been hanging out with our Caden, who just turned four. And, I mean, been here four times, probably about 37 times we've had to break up the fight of who gets to go first. Well, I want to go first. Well, I want to do more. Well, I'm better. Well, I'm bigger. Well, I'm older, right? Over and over again. They love each other, but, I mean, it's that kind of love, you know? Like, you don't have to teach a desire to be first. Kids don't need to learn that. You know what they need to learn? That being last is first. That to be great, you've got to be a servant. And so it's no wonder that as uh, we're seeing this, the disciples um, are, are, are struggling to grasp this, like really struggling. They're hearing these truths. They're so countercultural, so against everything they've ever heard. But Jesus is just patient and persistent with them. And now we get to the end of chapter 10, to this healing miracle, to conclude this section just like it began. And then even for us in our calendar, it's really interesting how this all kind of laid out. So Andy Steen, one of our elders here, preached that first healing in chapter 8, and he preached it on June 24th, the week that most schools around here were just getting out. And now here we come to the second healing on Labor Day weekend, the week that most schools are going to start up again. So our entire summer, week after week, has been a deep dive into this question, hey, what does it mean to be a disciple? What's it look like to follow him? So if you were traveling this summer, like all of us were, missed some in here, um, here and there, I would just encourage you to just take advantage of our podcast. AJ does a great job week after week from audio and video, getting sermons up online, on our app, on Facebook, on iTunes, wherever you want to get it, and just kind of fill in the holes here. Because all these sermons taken together, they're really important. They really will shape our lives and inform how we live as a church. What's it look like to follow him? What's it look like for a church to follow him? So let's go. Let's read the back end of the bookend. Mark chapter 10. We're going to be verses 46 to 52. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. 
And when he, w- when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. It's amazing about this little short batch of verses that Jesus includes all the elements that we've seen all summer on discipleship, and he puts it all into this one concluding story. And if you really go down, we won't even have time to go through every element, but it's all here, and it's incredible. So let me just kind of set up where they are, what the context is. So Jesus and his disciples all this time has been coming down from the north on their way to Jerusalem for Passover. So uh, Passover is where all about a million Jews would gather to Jerusalem every single year, and they're on a road, a kind of main pilgrimage road that's coming from the northeast. So it's filled with tons of people, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who are on this main highway, in a sense, making the annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they come to Jericho, which is the final city or town that's on the edge of the Judean wilderness before you begin this 3,500-foot ascent up to the elevated city of Jerusalem. So that's why Jerusalem was founded there. It was kind of an elevated city. Everything else around it was Judean kind of wilderness. So it's naturally where you want to find a city that's going to fortify you from your enemies. So Jericho is the last stop before you really get into the wilderness and start your ascent up to Jerusalem. And now This is not the same Jericho that we read about in the Old Testament. If you know your Bibles, you you remember that when Israel uh, crossed over into the Promised Land, they they roamed 40 years in the desert, went into the Promised Land under the leadership of Joshua. And what was the first city they took? Jericho. You know, the one with the walls? And they played their trumpets, and the walls came tumbling down, right? You remember that song? It's been stuck in your head since you were in second grade. That Jericho. Well, that Jericho is not this Jericho. That ancient Jericho was uninhabited by Jesus' time, but, but there was a city known as Herodian Jericho in the Roman Empire. And that's this one. And so think about this. Picture this with me. There's a main road for travel headed towards Jerusalem. And then there's a side road, one road that went in and out of Jericho. And it was this very popular pit stop for Jews that were on their way to Jerusalem because it was the last opportunity they could really stop and congregate and meet. So Jericho was um, just popping around this time of year, every single year. Think about days it takes to get from Galilee down to Judea. So you had to have certain stops along the way. And Jericho, this time of year, it's like seasonal boom in the industry. I think we can resonate resonate with this if you think about it. If you're like me and you like road trips, you love taking road trips and maybe you take them often, especially if there's a route that you go over and over again, you tend to memorize what the popular exits are, right, where you got to stop, which one has the good restaurants, which one has the good hotels, like we know we got to stop there, I've been on this road before. So actually a year ago today, this weekend, last Labor Day weekend, Rochelle and the kids were already out in Wisconsin visiting her family. And then after church, I got in the car and started to drive out to meet them. 
and I knew I couldn't get there all in one day. It's about 15 hours total, so I knew I'd have to stop and stay somewhere overnight. And I've talked about Route 80 on this pulpit before. <laughs> all right, many of you know Route 80. Love the road, hate the road. Um, goes across all Pennsylvania, northern Ohio, northern Indiana. The whole thing is pretty remote, but especially, like, you get halfway through Ohio, and there's just nothing till you get to Chicago. All right, it's a rough stretch, and I mean, there's just, I mean, long stretches, exits without um, exits, so you're kind of going, if you need to make a pit stop, I got to stop at this one, because it's probably 30 miles to the next one, and then a lot of the exits, just going to be honest, like it has a McDonald's, a Motel 6, and a nasty gas station, all right, like that's, like I'm talking the kind of gas stations where the entrance to the bathroom's on the outside, all right? You tracking with me? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you walk in, you're holding your breath, you see like an inspection, like half torn, the last time it was written in there was like 2004, like it was cleaned. All right, you get in and you go back out. But you see, I know this road well now. We've made many trips to Wisconsin, and I know that in this stretch, there's a little town off of Route 80 called South Bend, Indiana. A lot of you guys know that name, small little town, because it's the home of the University of Notre Dame. And like it was last night, Notre Dame versus Michigan, it becomes the host to tens of thousands of people for football games in the fall. So you go hundreds and hundreds of miles, nothing, 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 nasty gas station, nothing, nothing, and then it's like an oasis in the desert. Hotels and restaurants galore, all because a few Saturdays a year, this place is booming. All right, so that probably took way too long to explain to you that Jericho is the south bend of the ancient world. And during pilgrimage season, it's booming, which explains the great crowds that are on this single road in and out of Jericho. And and it just kind of sets the scene for this healing that, again, it's going to do this masterful job of summing up all that Jesus has been teaching, all that we've dove into for the past two months. So here's what I want to do. There's three things that get spotlighted there's probably way more, but time, have time for three. Three things that get spotlighted here that will guide the rest of our time. First, the boldness of Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is a blind beggar sitting by the side of the road. Crowds are passing constantly. He's, he's more than likely just being overlooked, right? Just part of the landscape, never noticed. Nobody notices Bartimaeus anymore. He's physically limited in what he can do. He's emotionally downcast. I imagine he's poor, he's hungry, lonely. No one will help him despite all the crowds coming back and forth. Because they're bustling, and they're preparing for Passover week in Jerusalem, and they don't have time for Bartimaeus. Man, their schedules are full. they got places they got to go. they got accommodations they got to get to. There's nothing about Bartimaeus that's attractive to them at all. Further, there was a common mentality amongst Jews in the first century that someone who was handicapped or disabled in any way was that way because of their own sin. You see, it was their fault. A punishment for, if not their sin, then maybe if they were born that way, it was probably the sin of their parents that got passed down. So let me show you where I get this. If you want to turn your Bibles to John chapter 9, feel free. Otherwise, we'll also have it on the screen. Jesus walking with his disciples. We read this in John 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, 
And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Think about this. His disciples are asking him this. They're not trying to trick him. Like, they're genuinely trying to understand. This man was blind from birth. They're they're his followers, and so they assume, just based upon what the mentality was in their culture around them, that, that either this man sinned, and he deserved this, or maybe even worse, his parents sinned, and God said, I'm going to make your child blind from birth, and it was a punishment. So which is it, Jesus? It has to be one or the other. Like, they don't give him a third option. Jesus replies in a way that we should pay close attention to. Watch verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, look, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I wish I could go down that and unpack that more, but I'd encourage you to think that through, and maybe it would impact the way we would value and treasure kids and people, especially with special needs. Point is, I think the crowds did not address physical felt needs around them because they told themselves, hey, Bartimaeus and everybody like him, they're the way they are because of their own fault. They deserved it. And you know what that did? That made it easy just to keep walking, right? If they put themselves there, then I don't have to help them. In fact, that's God's punishment and judgment on them. And even better, I can keep walking don't even need to feel guilty about it. That's part of the reason why this mentality became the dominant one. And so, again, uh, can't go down this road, but let the hearer understand. Helping the least of these, helping the ones that are downcast, poor, marginalized, pursuing biblical justice. We got some work to do, don't we? Bartimaeus, however, displays this level of boldness that just can't be ignored. He hears Jesus of Nazareth is the one that is walking by. So what does he do? He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And now the crowd notices him because now he's starting to act up. So what do they do? Tell him to shut up. Come on, Bartimaeus, Jesus is coming by. This is a big time. It's coming about to be Passover week. We don't have time for this. Don't bother him. Know your place. Stop talking. I'm on team Bart here. I love his response. He's told to shut up. And what does he do? All right. I'll yell all the louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, it's a term that indicates a messianic title. It's a well-known prophecy from 2 Samuel chapter 7 that was given to David that through his bloodline will come a throne and a kingdom that will be established forever. And so this is this bold proclamation by Bartimaeus on multiple levels. It's not just a cry out for physical help. There's the spiritual aspect to it. He's crying out to the Messiah. To Mark ironically shows what his disciples can't see yet, a blind beggar on the side of the road. Here's Jesus in Nazareth, and he knows. He knows. What grace. We have much to learn from Bartimaeus. I think he's put forward as an example for us, someone we should be sure to glean from, because as we'll see in a moment, Jesus is never bothered by someone who cries out to him. I want to know, do you believe that? How much does it take for you to go all in on crying out to Jesus for help? for his saving grace, for his sustaining grace. Like, do you believe he never gets tired of it? 
He never gets frustrated by it. Like, again? It's only Tuesday. It's the third time this week. And he never does that. He never gets frustrated. And some of you hear about Barmaeus' state and maybe on some level on a spectrum can empathize with that. And, and, and if you can't right now, just give it some time and we'll all be there at some point. You know that point I'm talking about? That point of helplessness? Like, I feel alone. Crowds are passing, but nobody's seeing me. Nobody gets it. No one's willing to help. And maybe the only time people do speak into your life, it's just to tell you to give it up. Stop making a commotion. Come on, we don't have time for that. Perhaps you've begun to believe that you are less than, that all these things that have been happening, it is your fault. I want you to see the boldness of Bartimaeus and let it wash over you. Because Jesus, our Jesus, loves people with bold, gutsy faith that cries out to him. It's a central aspect to his whole teaching on discipleship, that those who go low, those who know they're helpless, those who suffer for his name's sake, those who depend fully on him and know that there's no one else to go, those are the ones Jesus is going to address. There's a quote I probably share every six months here, and I think it's time. Corey Tenboom, love it. It's not until Jesus is all you have that you realize Jesus is all you need. And it's the ones with bold, desperate faith who Jesus responds to. Haven't we seen that over and over again just in the Gospel of Mark? There's these men who cut a hole in a roof of someone's home just to lower their paralyzed friend down because he was sick and they couldn't get him because of the crowds. There's a woman who bled for 12 years straight who said, I'm getting to Jesus. There's a Syrophoenician woman who's an enemy to the Jews whose daughter was possessed and got to Jesus. What do they all have in common? Bold faith that goes against cultural norms. I don't care what cultural norms are. I'm getting to Jesus. And every single time, Jesus loves it. The boldness of Bartimaeus. Let's keep going. Second, the compassion of Jesus. So if you've been around for mo most or even some of this Mark series, this point should not surprise you anymore. Like I've said over and over again, if you could boil down Jesus' emotional life to one word in the Gospels, it's compassion. It's out of compassion that he came in the first place to give his life as a ransom for many. But it's also that compassion that informed and shaped what he did in his time on earth. So I want you to think about it. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's at the last stop before the ascent. The courage he needed for that. The focus to take the cup of wrath. To resolve to stay on that path. He needs laser focus. Just, I mean, think about in your life. Isn't it true that when something big is approaching... As you get closer to it, you're just blinders on, right? So you're starting a new job. Maybe you're even going on a big vacation. There's a trip coming up. Uh, something's happening, and as you get closer, just everything else gets blocked out because I got to stay focused on this. And yet, Jesus, who had the biggest mission a man has ever had come into earth, never releases his compassion, never stops looking around for those who need help. So when Bartimaeus cries out all the louder, crowds are going past and forth. I love how Mark puts it, Jesus stopped. The crowds were moving, but Jesus, he stopped. Tells his disciples, call him. 
And now the crowd changes their tune. Do you notice that? They go from saying, hey, shut up, to now going to Bartimaeus and being like, get up, brother. Take heart. He's calling you like Jesus is paying attention. We're going to pay attention to him now. Like totally just contradicting what they were doing five minutes earlier. Jesus noticed the one. In all the crowds, in all the hustle and bustle, he had time for the one. You know what's interesting about this one? This is the only healing in the Gospel of Mark where we're told the person's name who was healed. Go back and read them through. Everyone who was healed was nameless. We were told Jairus' name, but if you go back to who was actually healed, Jairus' daughter, nameless. But here, where the story bookends, the final healing in the Gospel of Mark, the final one that kind of closes out this discourse on discipleship, what's it look like to be a disciple? We get his name. It's Bartimaeus. Only time in Mark. Jesus notices the one. You think this had an impact on his disciples? He had just told them why he had come, cosmic purpose for the Son of Man, Savior of the world, and yet he notices the one. He pours into the one. He serves even just the one. You think that left a mark on them? I, I think it did. Let, let me show you why I think it did. These disciples, we've talked about it over and over again, they're struggling to grasp this, but, but in due time, they're going to get it. And they're going to get it in a big way. And the book of Acts is this whole book that narrates the impact of how they get it and how the Roman Empire was transformed by these, by these men, these leaders and forerunners of the church. So watch this in Acts 3. You don't have to turn there. It's going to be on the screen. Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple. This is in Jerusalem. At the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Look, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Both of them directed their gaze. This is a busy time in Jerusalem, hour of prayer, people going in, people going out. But they stopped, and they noticed the one. Why? Because Jesus noticed and he taught them, and he showed them. So church, let me just give you an encouraging word. Don't overlook the one. Who is the one in your life that God wants you to direct your gaze at? Who is your one? Jeff just mentioned it. We're, we're on the edge of Labor Day, man, and on the other end of Labor Day, it looks a little crazy, doesn't it? Schedules are getting a little crazy. The masses and the busyness, and we can so easily overlook the one. Danny Aiken, in his commentary on Mark, put it best, quotes on the screen. Christians should avoid getting, caught, getting so caught up with the masses that we miss the one. Pray for one at a time. Evangelize one at a time. Feed one at a time. Clothe one at a time. Disciple one at a time. Adopt one at a time. There's always one who needs our help. Do you see that one? Do you hear that one? As life inevitably gets busy and stays busy for all of us, let me ask, who's your one going into the fall? Who will you invest in? Who will you pray for? Who will you witness to? Do not overestimate the power of focusing on one. If everybody in our church noticed the one, what would our church look like next summer? So who's your one? 
Like, what's his name? What's her name? All right, let's keep going. Third and finally, the faith that follows. Let me read the final two verses again. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Again, final healing in the Gospel of Mark is right here. The next five chapters, which we'll eventually get to, take place over just one week, the Passion Week. And it's in this healing that Mark explicitly makes this connection that we've seen all along in bits and pieces, that faith in Jesus Christ always connects with following Jesus Christ. Jesus asks Bartimaeus what he would like. Notice the same question he asked James and John last week. What do you want me to do for you? James and John, we want to be greatest. We want to seat on your right, and we want to seat on your left. We want the best seats in the kingdom, Jesus. Bartimaeus, what do you want? Bartimaeus is low. He's humbled. He says, I just want to see. Jesus, I want to see. Jesus grants him his request, but in doing so, says, your faith has made you well indicates that this healing is physical, fully physical. The man's sight was restored, but it's spiritual as well. The faith he displayed in seeing Jesus as the son of David, the Messiah, the one who could show mercy, the one who could save eternally. And when Jesus says this, your faith has made you well, I'm telling you what he's not saying. He's not saying, Bartimaeus, you earned it. You said the magic words. You're in. You're pretty lucky, man. I was on my way out of town. But you did it just in time. No. Saving faith never occurs as a result of someone impressing Jesus and earning salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And faith is a gift we receive, not a reward we earn. Gift, faith is a gift we receive, not a reward we earn. It's grace. It's God's grace is the only reason for salvation. Faith is merely the hand that reaches out and receives it. Here's what the connection I want us to see before we close. How do we know that Bartimaeus was saved? How do we know that he received saving faith? It's that final verse, the one that's easy to just skip over. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him. The underlying message this entire summer is that real faith is a faith that follows. Faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross as our Savior over death always leads to following him as our example in life. We follow him in a way where it shapes our entire life. If, if you're not following Christ, if he's not shaping everything about your life, it doesn't mean you're killing it and you're perfect, but it's, if, it's, if he's not influenced every aspect of your life, I'm going to question lovingly whether, it's, whether or not you have faith. Because true faith is a faith that follows. Jesus says, not say a prayer and you're in. He says, follow me. I'm going this way. I'm living this way. Follow me. Believe in me and then do what I do. I've transformed you from the inside out so you can do it. If you look back on the great leaders in your life, the ones who really had an influence on you, get them in your mind. Those great leaders, you know why they were probably great? Because they weren't the ones who just told you what to do. 
but they're the ones who also showed you how to do it. You see, real leaders, they lead by example. They're doers, not just talkers. And Jesus is the gold standard of leadership, the one who shows us the way for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And he turned the world upside down. And listen, he's still turning the world upside down today through his church. And if we are willing to be faithful in following him, we can play a part. Let's pray.